This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery... Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes Series 4, Episode 10. I am John Richardson. I'm joined by the Future Notes, Mr. Ed Gillespie. Hello! And Mr. Mark Stevenson. Hello. Oh, lovely. That was gruff. <laughs> that was nice. I liked it. Oh, I can carry on talking like that for the whole show, if you like. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe seating. not the whole show. <laughs> How are we all? <laughs> oh, God. It's the pregnant pause. All right, then. How aren't we all? Is that a better question? Uh, the sun is shining. The sunlight is glinting on the river. It's that warm golden hour. I'm feeling good. Aww. Mark, are you having a good hour? I like that we're breaking it down to an hour at a time. <laughs> and the specific hour in which you ask, um, seven out of ten. <laughs> yeah, it's always nice to be in your company. I'm having a bit of a crisis of confidence at the moment, but yeah, nice to be here. Personal or professional? Professional, I think. Just adjusting to being in a fast-growing company and thinking, why am I here? All these people are very competent. They don't need me. Have you had an acid latte yet? <laughs> <laughs> There's a similar thing I get in comedy where on tour you think, why are all these people coming to see me because I'm not funny. I'm never more a comic than in a sold-out theatre about to do a gig where it's my name on the poster, and that is the point at which I doubt myself the most intensely because it seems ridiculous. And you are never more an important future-thinking person than running a fast-growing company that is trying to make the planet a better place, and that will be the point at which you think, the fuck am I doing here? Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly how it is. Although I guess, John, I mean, that often doesn't happen to you, does it? The sold out crowd. <laughs> so you often get that feeling. He's all right, you know, Ed. I was worried yeah. about him, but he's all right. Yeah, exactly. He's under his back. He's got his boxing gloves on. I feel more comfortable in, in, in this company than elsewhere at the moment. I mean, you know, drawing carbon out of the atmosphere is one thing, but I think we successfully draw comedy out of the air and bury it. <laughs> never to be seen again that's right we take the comedy right out of the air and put it where nobody will see it for a millennia we started off as comedy neutral and now we've realised we must go further and actually be comedy negative yes I like that idea that this podcast is some kind of time capsule that people might dig up you know in the future and go oh well, they did realise that things were a bit fucked and at least they were trying to think about ways of resolving some of those tensions yeah what I don't like about your your narrative is that it sounds like we failed miserably 
Well, <laughs> you discovered Ed that if we are to be buried now, this is our fiftieth episode. That's something to be celebrated, isn't it? It is fifty episodes. I remember our producer Michael saying right back in the day. I think we were recording like episode one, and he said the thing with the podcast is you've got to build a sort of bank of episodes. And I remember when he said, once you've got four series and 48 episodes under your belt, then you'll be really rolling. (laughs) It's like, it's taken us a while to get because I think we did two series in the first year, and now we've managed to complete two series in the subsequent two years. So it's taken us a while, but yeah, it feels good to get here. And, you know, as is my knee-jerk reaction at the moment, I asked ChatGPT for some (laughs) famous people who died at 50 thinking maybe if we went out with a bang on 50 episodes. And it was was one of those revealing moments where you realise the AI isn't as good as you think it is, because it suggested Jimi Hendrix, who died at 27, Princess Diana, who died at 36, and Heath Ledger, who died at 28. So I don't know how it got that so wrong. Ah, What was our 27th episode? Maybe it's cleverer (laughs) than you think. Maybe it thinks. You don't need to worry about dying at 50, mate. You died at episode 27. Was that the future of sewage? (laughs) And then I asked it like famous series or TV series that finished at 50 episodes and it suggested the Golden Girls, which I thought was ironic. So maybe we're the Golden Boys, but the Golden Girls actually did 180 episodes. So again, chat GPT, wrong. Yeah. It was the 50 year anniversary of Emmerdale last year. So Whoa. we've got some way to go before we are um, as successful as Emmerdale, but hopefully with fewer helicopter crashes. I know, if we're still recording on our 50th year, that was going to make Mark and I incredibly ancient, yeah. given the fact that I was 47, I think, when we started recording the Fugionals. So that would make me 97. Yeah, my nan's still going. She's 97. I've got an idea for some unfucking. <laughs> That's a very good impression. <laughs> I didn't know you'd met. Just for the record, I've never met your nan. So... Ed, your expertise is this show and how many we've done. Mark, you have a specialist expertise. And something kicked off this week that I'm told is to do with Prog on Twitter. I mean, I don't know any of the names in this or what's going on, but there was a very angry tweet to Roger Waters. Yes. So talk me through what's happened here. Well, so Pink Floyd, you may have heard of them. I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, so Roger Waters used to be in Pink Floyd and was kind of the main lyricist behind a lot of their famous angsty records. And he left because he fell out with the others and thought he was the sole genius. It happens a lot in bands, doesn't it? It does. Let's hope it doesn't happen in podcasts. (laughs) I'm off. My genius here is wasted. There's one poet lyricist here. (laughs) I don't know. You two both have other podcasts. I don't. So you're the Roger Waters of this story. Anyway, so he went off and he rather thought that because he was leaving that Pink Floyd should stop being because he thought, well, I'm basically it. And he was quite mean to some of the other people in the band. And they said, no, we're going to carry on. Then he tried to sue them and blah, blah. It was all very horrible. Typical kind of throw your toys at the pram, for God's sake, grow up. Pink Floyd carried on being very successful. He carried on being very successful, but they've always hated each other basically ever since then. And then David Gilmore, the main guitarist, and I guess the main guy who wrote a lot of the music, He married a lady called Polly Sampson, who's a very successful author. And this week, Roger Waters has slightly gone down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole and says some very stupid things, as rock stars often do. And she tweeted something like, you anti-Semitic lip-syncing... Do you want me to read you the tweet? Yeah, Yeah. read me the tweet. (laughs) 
Sadly, Roger Waters, you are anti-Semitic to your rotten core, also a Putin apologist and a lying, thieving, hypocritical, tax-avoiding, lip-syncing, misogynistic, sick-with-envy megalomaniac. Enough of your nonsense. Not my words for any lawyers listening. The words of Polly Thompson. That tirade of accusations is horrific. To avoid legal repercussions, we shall not go into any of them right here, right now. But the one I think that a lot of prog fans will be most shocked by is lip syncing. <laughs> Some of them will go, the rest I could forgive. But uh, lip syncing <laughs> as a prog artist is absolutely outrageous. That was designed. I think she's probably spent years crafting that. Yeah, that's snuck in the middle, hasn't it, as well? as if it's, yeah. just, it's like a flurry of blows and then wallop one below the belt. Have that. Yeah. Have you ever lip synced, Mark? No. You're going to have to do it for your videos. Oh, yeah. No, that's just true. Yeah. We, we, when we shot the video for our first single, yeah, we did. What does it feel like? Does it feel ridiculous? or does it... it feels like how you feel when you're writing poetry. You're not really doing it, but you feel that you are. <laughs> I've always wanted to know, when, when you lip sync, do you sing along and they just dub the thing over or do you literally just not make a sound? You literally don't make a sound because it seems a bit odd to be singing it in the room to a backing track. That's very odd, isn't it? It wouldn't look the same, surely. I, I would struggle to not look embarrassed. Has anyone ever tried to lip sync a comedy gig? Just like, do the previous night's show again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting back to the AI there and the point at which I only have to do one show and then send a robot out to do it every yeah. night. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I think the Pink Floyd reunion that people often keep wanting is probably off. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, it's a very successful tweet. If you look in algorithms, you know, sometimes you look back and you think, well, what can I do to make my Twitter more successful? Polly Sampson, it's very clear what she needs to do. Just get on that ranting box. Yeah. Absolutely scream at people. We've probably had enough prog. Let's get into what we're here though. for. Oh, here we go. We haven't had enough prog. Live update. More prog. Well, live update indeed, because by the time this show goes, I, I will have played the Isbeting Assembly Hall supporting Lonely Robot. Is that the sort of lonely robot we talked about the other week that 40% of Brits are prepared to use? I think that's a less lonely robot. (laughs) Sounds like a robot that's having a lovely time. (laughs) When I talk about a lonely robot, let's discuss our air fryer that's been locked in a kitchen cupboard since we bought it. (laughs) You've not used your air fryer. I thought they were very popular. Oh, yeah, I did. That's why I bought one. Having one's the same as using it, isn't it? It's like a juicer. You don't actually have to use it and be healthy. You just have to have one sort of get healthy by osmosis this is a good question for listeners isn't it like tell us the thing that you bought that you thought you were going to use and you used it once and then it's just sat there sort of accusing you of stupid consumerism well there's a lot of that i think mine was that john richardson dvd i bought for you (laughs) (laughs) i want to go back to series one but i doubt anyone else is sat in an office next to a testy koozie (laughs) (laughs) i know mark's got one of those in his sleep pod in his new office Oh, yeah, you probably have a member of staff now, don't you, to gently aerate and warm your <laughs> testicles. Don't need a testicoozie. Julian, bring me my ball bath. <laughs> God. Stick an Alka-Seltzer in there. <laughs> so let's move on. And, yes, and this let's is... fucking move on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, a themed series, this one, but this one I think will be covering one topic probably at large, and it sort of feeds off a question we had coming from Gary who says, you might need to speak up as my wife will be talking all over you while I'm trying to listen. So, hello, Gary. Gary, hello. 
Gary! <laughs> Oi, Mrs. Gary, can you pipe down? <laughs> oh, you'll be getting a tweet from Polly Sampson. You carry on like that, mate. <laughs> Great to be listening again. That's what everyone says at the Every email we get says, I really enjoy this podcast. It's really uplifting and demoralising at the same time. <laughs> I guess that's the sphere we move in. In the books by Yuval Noah Harari, he talked about the split between the rich and the poor, how this would affect length and quality of life based on your ability to pay for it. It feels a bit like this is now in full flow. The rich and powerful around the world seem to be making a grab for power, influence and money all at the time, ignoring the plight of the poorer elements in society. Do you think this is true and that the rich are now centralizing their influence and money into governments that promote money to money? Cheers, Gary. And that brings us on, I'd say broadly, to the conversation we teased at the end of episode nine. Our friend of the show, James Plunkett, has written about a thing he calls unequality. Am I right to say that those two things are the same? This is the point that James is making, John. James is saying, actually, unequality is very, very different to inequality. And it's not just a semantic difference. And his argument, as is often the way with James in his very incisive book, End State, is to say that if you treat unequality the same as inequality, it's like in policymaking, you're acting like a person who is staring at a nail that is morphing ever so slowly into a screw. And deep down, you sense that something has changed, but we still call the thing in front of us a nail. And since we still have that degree in nail studies and we're holding a hammer and our hammering technique is well practiced, we just stand there year after year whacking away on a nail that has become a screw. And I think the really key thing here is he says that Unequality is the economic injustices that are arising from capitalism in its early to mid 21st century form. And I think you can see that. We just had the announcements this week with both Shell and BP posting record profits of 50 plus billion between them, whilst also doubling down on their oil and gas investment. I saw a brilliant blog from the Drilled Gang who were talking about the Harry Nielsen classic. Is Harry Nielsen prog, Mark? Or not? Oh, for God's sake, why do I have to put up <laughs> with this kind of shit? Of course he's not prog. He's not prog, okay. No. Okay. But, you know, that song, basically the oil and gas industry is singing, you can't live if living is without us, which is obviously basically not true. But well, the way James explains it is really powerful, I think. He has this sort of super smart thought experiment where he asks us to imagine two societies that are identical in the way wages are distributed between people but different in the way wages are distributed between companies. So if you imagine the first society, wages vary mostly within companies. So, you know, there are loads of thriving businesses, all moderately unequal, and they're comparable rankings when which one's doing better change year by year. But within each company, wages climb depending on your role. So cleaners earn less than the admin staff, who earn less than managers, who earn less than their bosses. But people still share all the rituals of office life, the testacuzzi and the sleep pod, <laughs> the acid latte, the horror of the office Christmas party, farting in the lift, etc. And then in the second society, wages vary more between companies than they do within them. So at the bottom, you have all these struggling businesses, which are quite slow and outdated, and some profitable but low-paying firms. So that's all your, like, your warehouses, your cleaning agencies, your delivery companies. And at the top is a high-paying elite with all the designers, digital platforms, and lawyers, etc. And the membership of that elite doesn't change much. So low-paid people in this society still meet high-paid people, but usually 
when they're providing them some kind of personal service, delivering them food or whatever. So the question back to you guys is, which world are we in now? The second, for sure. Yeah, the second. The second. So Yeah, the second. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the second. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. This is James' argument. He said, in the last 20 years, the world's mature capitalist economies have gone from the first society to the second, with wage gaps widening between firms. And this is the key difference between inequality, which has been about historically unequal wages, and unequality, where you're getting this homogeneity, the same wages within companies. So what's going on? What do you think this means? Well, it means that money is being concentrated in fewer and fewer organisations. Exactly, exactly. So this is what goes back yeah, to Gary's yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, Money's- <laughs> So basically, what's happening is winners take all. So the top 10% of the performing businesses are actually generating 80% of all profit. And the top 1% of those businesses are generating about a third. Whereas most of them, the middle 60%, just about break even. And then the repercussions of that means you get these low-paying firms that squeeze every penny like you may have seen the news that Ryanair staff are now banned from charging their mobile phones at work. You're joking. On planes? We're just banned from charging their mobile phones because obviously Michael O'Leary has realised that that costs money in terms of electricity and because they shave every bloody margin they can. I had to take a Ryanair flight recently because I could only get the ferry if I travelled a day before and a day after my show. The guy next to me on the plane got a bit unwell at one point had to call the uh, air stewards over and they were excellent. They sort of got around him and fanned him and gave him some water and a Kit Kat and he sort of came back. As soon as he was well again, I thought, I bet they're going to fucking charge him for that Kit Kat. <laughs> I bet when he goes to get off the plane, they say, yeah, that'll be 17 quid, please. So I'm afraid you had a bottle of water and a Kit Kat, albeit you were dying at the time, but now you're all right. Tap your card there, mate. Yeah, yeah. But you got it for free. So there's a tip. If you are on a Ryanair flight and you're a bit hungry and you don't want to pay 78 quid for a Kit Kat, just uh, have a bit of a wobble. Do you think he got ill because he was sitting next to you? I mean, it's very possible. We did have a little chat when he got on. Yeah. He was sat in the seat next to me and then he moved over one and he said, oh, we don't think I'm rude. I'm just going to move over there. I said, it's all right, mate. Don't worry about it. Yeah, do you think it's because he was just so struck by your celebrity that it made him queasy? He was he was struck by something, sort of the morning stench. Something <laughs> happened. Going back to oh, the, sorry. the point. Yeah, come on. <laughs> this is my show. So Ryanair Abadis. Ryanair Abadis. These low-paying firms are squeezing every penny while the top businesses are bidding for the limited talent pool with all this indulgent largesse of in-house massages and all that kind of stuff. And what's happening means you get this sort of both global and digital business elite actually doing complete market capture and power. And organizations like Facebook and Google, the return on capital for them is about 40%. And And if you benchmark that against a business like Tesco, where it's only about 6%. So these organizations are making money hand over fist. And then that is creating this sort of suffocating effect, which means we have less startup activity and less disruption and displacement, despite all the claims of the digital world. And also, those big leviathans are cutting out of their companies all the low-pay roles. And James uses the language like tumours. So Apple will be there trumpeting the fact that their beautiful kit is designed in California, but then it's made in Chinese sweatshops. And an Uber coder will never meet an Uber driver except when that driver is giving them a bloody lift. The upshot of all of this is, or downside if you like, is actually what we're getting 
again, in back to Gary's question, is this sort of stratifying and scleratizing and clotting of us into two worlds, one of sort of hope and vitality and one of worry and despair. Well, that's not good, is it? I want everyone to be in the first one. Well, yeah, and that's why this is different to the past. That's why inequality in James's argument is different to inequality. So it's not the inequality of the 80s that supposedly birthed that notion of trickle-down economics. Those of us who are long in the tooth will remember the sort of 80s elections of Mondeo Man. And that whole idea was briefly resuscitated, mercifully, by Liz Truss. But in the 80s, to a certain extent, the rising tide did lift most boats, if not all. But in the 2010s, what we've seen since then is a real flatline and decline in real terms for the majority of us. And again, the ramifications of that mean that it's really hard to get access to finance because digital businesses tend to be based on intangible assets. So people who want to fund them tend to borrow against housing equity or raise from friends and family. So if you don't have existing wealth, it's very hard to borrow. And shockingly, like 89% of venture capital funding goes to all male teams. Yeah. And only 1% of it goes to all female teams. So we're ending up in this sort of disproportionately white male middle-aged groupthink, which is probably what leads us to self-driving cars, because it's boys getting excited about the things that titillated them when they were in their youth. There are people trying to do something about this. So for instance, our CEO actually worked for Google before she came to work for us. And she was headhunted to be head of startups. So basically take Google's money and invest it in help startup companies that they might be interested in. And she said, I'll only do it if you allow me to invest in underrepresented founders in Africa and black founders in the UK, because these people don't get access to this kind of capital and whatever. And she incubated something like 220 businesses from underrepresented founders that are doing great guns. But she's in marked contrast to lots of other people. We're dealing with quite a lot of VCs at the moment. And what strikes me very is that once you've got money, it's easy to get more money. And that's there's something wrong in the system there. Like if you've got 10 million quid in the bank, just the interest alone pays for everything you could possibly think of probably. So it's kind of a madness. And what's mad about it is that that inequality and inequality is actually really bad for the rich as well, because it's massively geopolitically destabilizing. And this is why 80% of people hate their jobs. This is why you have a massive efficiency and productivity problem is that actually the idea of trying to scoop these rents out from other people in the end is very, very bad business strategy because you end up with crappy products, lame services, employees that don't want to be there, and your business goes down the toilet. And the country goes down the toilet because you can't afford anything. It's very interesting you say all that because all, all the while I've been sort of following this conversation, I'm struck by, as a sort of microcosm of what you're talking about, a, a newspaper article that's just come out about podcasts, which are following this exact trend you talk about where there was a flurry of them and we all thought it was this great egalitarian sharing of content and everything going straight to the makers and direct to the users and no ads and now a news article that we had an 80% decline in new shows and the concentration of wealth amongst a, a few goliaths and and as you were saying there a, a remaining number of podcasts where you have unmotivated workers who don't want to be there that are about to end in the bin so which one are we? <laughs> Without getting into the technicalities, I think that's one thing that producer Michael has been a constructive genius about is to try and avoid that funneling of all of the wealth and revenue into one or two flagship podcasts. And let's face it, in comparison to our podcast, um, he does also produce 
the UK's most successful podcast. How do you measure success? How do you measure success, though? Success, yeah? yes, How do you measure yeah. success, though? Yeah? <laughs> We're making listeners feel frequently despondent and despairing about the future. So Yeah. <laughs> and offering the kind of tangible solutions. But I think this is, again, coming back to James Plunkett's point. He said there are ways of fixing this. And it is tackling some of those anti-competitive dynamics. It's also about massive reskilling. I mean, I've done a bit of work with the Institute for Apprenticeships and Training and Technical Skills because we need to reskill probably 4 million people in this country and we need to do it fast. Or you have that ongoing stratification. Going back to the oil and gas giants we started with at the beginning, of course they should be paying more tax on that. I mean, you know, the CEO of Shell even said we should be taxed more. And this was before the gas prices had gone absolutely stratospheric because that redistribution is also absolutely essential because unfortunately Rishi Sunak left loads of loopholes in the windfall tax when he imposed it which enabled those oil and gas giants to write off a lot of their tax uh, against new investment in oil and gas which is insane in a climate crisis so we've even sort of given them a tax incentive to double down on their core business. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. These all seem like obviously very important and progressive steps, but when you outline the depth of the problem, as you did at the beginning, they seem quite piecemeal and societally it seems like what we have is a disagreement between whether you take these small, albeit very important steps, or whether you tear down the system. And you defined inequality in James's words as injustices arising from capitalism in its current form. So are we talking about tweaking capitalism or... Is there a suggestion that what we need to do is start again almost? Well, I think capitalism, and I've said this a number of times, the definition of the word is basically about how you move capital around in its various forms, whether it's financial capital or human capital or plant and machinery or whatever. And there's a whole bunch of capital that we don't talk about, like the domestic work of caregivers or the capital that's provided by the planet, a breathable atmosphere. So one way out of this might be pretty much every nation now is saying it's going to have to have this net zero target or what is having net zero targets so it wants to get to net zero by a certain time. And actually that's going to cost because suddenly you've got to drive efficiencies, you've got to sort of remove the carbon that you're putting out there. And actually it's the biggest emitters that will face the biggest costs if we get the legislation right. So it, in a way, the battle against climate may be one of the ways that we address some of this. And in fact, there is no battle against climate without climate justice. And some of that will be that the biggest polluters will have to pay the most. And hopefully that's a good thing. And I think that's the other dimension that James talks about. He said, if historical inequality has been primarily about money and material resources, you know, and access to that, and perhaps the hammering of the nail was always about trying to address wage gaps and those kind of things and the redistribution of income. Unequality is about that, but it's also about your agency, your ability to break out of those low-paying strata, the gig economy jobs. It's also about the status and pride, referring back to the care workers and the key workers that Mark was alluding to. And James, perhaps in an idealistic mode, is saying this is a, perhaps a new philosophy of justice, which would allow us to 
recognize and if you like redistribute some of that capital revenue to the people who actually keep the whole show on the road and i think the most important thing we often come back to on this podcast to talk about mental health and well-being and the cost as mark was saying that inequality and inequality make it worse for the rich too is that this could all make us all happier the other bit of news that sort of struck me this week was a new book out by the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, which has been going for like the last 84 years. This psychiatrist called Robert Waldinger, he's explaining in this new book what he's learned about health and fulfillment. And there's something very weird and interesting which happened in the 1980s once this experiment really started to gather momentum. And he said, it's the longest running study in the world on happiness. And it started to show that good relationships keep us healthier and happier. He says, we know there's a mind-body connection. We all pay lip service to it and go, yeah, yeah, whatever. But what the evidence is showing is that warmer relationships make it less likely that you would develop coronary artery disease or arthritis. And he was asking the question, well, how can relationships get into the body and affect our physiology? And this is why this notion of inequality is so important around our agency, our status and our pride and the meaning and purpose in our work and the connections, because good health is obviously important life expectancy, but it's also our freedom to make decisions and our capacity to do so. And the notion of trust in friends, family and governments, which seems to affect our resilience to ill health. There was a reference in that report, not not just to physical health, but in terms of the conversation about happiness in general and, and religion and those relationships and the effect they have, not necessarily on you becoming more happy. The studies found that religious people are not more or less likely to be happy, but they find faith a solace in times of stress. And I think that feels like, in terms of where we are now, bringing it back to the sort of wider picture, COVID and the financial problems we're in and the strikes at the moment, we are in a difficult time at the moment. And Mark, you referenced it right at the beginning, that those personal challenges you have, if you are involved in trying to make things better and you have to question yourself and you have to question whether we're all on board, there's never been a time, I think, that is more exposing of what do you have around you that helps you get through those difficult times. And it's not about happiness being something you can achieve. And it's not about ticking everything off and saying, there, I'm happy forever. Because even the most successful people, however you choose to measure success, will have difficult times. But are we set up societally to allow everyone to have the tools that they need to navigate difficult times? And it feels like at the moment, there's just loads of people who don't. There are millions and millions of us who feel absolutely no agency about our lives, no ability to make changes, don't have the tools we need in terms of mindfulness or human connections or interactions to weather what is now a globally difficult period. This is the key thing. Like Economic security matters, but the evidence shows that there is little improvement in happiness after a, a household's combined income hits 50K, which I guess if you were a couple who are both nurses, with a starting salary of 24 grand, you might just be tipping that, but it will still feel like you're skating on thin ice. But the fact is a good life pretty much boils down to being engaged in activities I care about with people I care about. Mm. And I think this idea that relationships help us manage the stress, John, as you were saying, when we know that that stress is a part of life, but what we think happens and what Walding is describing is that relationships help our bodies manage and recover from stress. They bring that resilience. So people who are lonely and socially isolated or lacking a sense of agency or feel like they're stuck in a low-paying rut end up in a sort of perpetual chronic fight-or-flight mode 
where at a low level they have much higher levels of those circulating stress hormones like cortisol which leads to high levels of inflammation and that those things gradually wear away different parts of our body systems it's a grind it really is and Waldinger says is it's quite interesting when you think about the difference between hedonic well-being where you ask yourself the question am i having a good time right now which tends to be our indulgences to more of the aristotelian idea of eudaimonic well-being which is a sense of life being meaningful and basically good and our mistake is to pursue the hedonic over the eudaimonic and this is where i think it gets fascinating because mark often talks about the physical fitness and actually the importance of exercise and we touched on it in a previous episode didn't we about we'll go to the gym or do the exercise which works for you but waldinger talks about this idea of social fitness as being just as important and he asked the question who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared and he said everyone needs at least one or two people like that and if you don't have that you're probably hurting and again it could be the relationship that works for you it could be somebody you go to the pub with you may not necessarily talk about personal things you might talk about politics you might talk about this podcast but it helps you feel connected and like you belong and it comes down to that connection and well-being so he's really emphasizing the importance of those small moments of connection the discussions with strangers the exchange you might have with someone on the checkout till actually organizing to go and meet a friend reading a story to your child at bedtime those are the things that actually our health and happiness probably depend on most i'll tell you what if we answer all of the questions as we've answered gary's we're never going to end <laughs> I'm just thinking about his poor wife, though. I mean, he's been trying to listen to this. She's been going, well, they're answering my question. They've probably split up now. I know. He's probably just said to her, just give me two minutes while they answer this question. <laughs> 20 minutes later. She's got her thumb over a burst pipe. Gary! <laughs> I was just talking about how we rebuild society. The house is flooding, Gary! <laughs> So without going too deep, I'm really enjoying this series, I have to say, and thank you to both of you. And it's because it's more reactive and it's where I feel like I'm sort of with you more in the moment and I'm following your journeys creatively and professionally and emotionally. So Mark, since it's of relevance to this episode and we've talked about you having a bit of a crisis of confidence at the moment and then we've all waffled on about how we need to build a, a better society and be grateful for things we've got, how practically applicable is that when you are having that crisis of confidence? Are you someone who is able to step back and say, right, in terms of that question, who do I ring in the middle of the night and what brings me happiness and is reading to my sons at night something that is able to help me navigate these things? Or is is it perhaps a bit harder than that because when you're in it, you aren't able to appreciate those things? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I was thinking about the definition is kind of like doing work you care about with people you care about. And that's certainly the work I'm doing at the moment, even this. <laughs> oh, it's so nice to know you care <laughs> but I do think yeah you kind of get lost in it I think self-doubt is a very interesting thing because it happens inside your own head like John for instance a lot of people would say as you walk onto that sold out gig at a massive venue again, like, how on earth could you lack self-confidence to somebody outside it would seem literally and empirically ridiculous and yet you definitely feel it and i've met quite a few comedians who feel like that so that's you know maybe on what do you think i would liken it to what you were saying that it's not by coincidence that you've ended up doing what you're doing that you are now running a company that has pressures on it of course because of the importance of the work but is big and is growing 
And it's the same with sort of stand-up comedy. You don't get there by accident. I'm here because what I've dedicated my life to and what I want to do is making people laugh in the room and you get better at it and it becomes bigger. But you don't change the person you are from that. I'm as insecure walking into a theatre having done comedy for 20 years as I was when I did my first gig 20 years ago in the small club and you're on a bill with other people. Those insecurities for some people change. I think you're perhaps able to, when you're well in your mind look back and say well i must be good at it because look what i'm doing but really you're the same person that is always waiting to get found out and and be questioned i've tried to talk about it on stage you know i've got a bit on the current tour about my show is how i like to talk to people i talk to you in big groups where you all sit in the dark and don't respond or i get you thrown out and i tell you only the bits of my previous five years of existence that i think are of interest to you and then i don't talk to you again for five years that's how i like to talk to people <laughs> <laughs> don't don't speak to me afterwards because I've got nothing left. <laughs> so, that is it, and those insecurities are, in some sense, the same as they were right at the beginning. But it is a difficult thing to people to understand because to objectively look at you, you're running a successful company in the field you want to work in. So why wouldn't you be happy? But it's so hard. I think in telly, it's very hard to portray temperature. You watch that Wim Hof thing and people jump into a lake. You can't feel that at home. You could watch someone turn blue and you can't feel it. And I think we have that with mental health that we talk about processes. And the reason I asked that question about when you're in it, can you step back? It's really hard at that time. And the less happy people are, I think we feel that less. And you'll often hear people saying like, oh, I don't know how you could do that if you had kids. Rather than say, imagine how unhappy you would have to be to behave like that and to have family around you and we almost think well once you've got kids that's it you never feel unhappy again not god how deep must you be into these problems that even having kids isn't enough to get you out of them and and be more sympathetic at that time rather than just say well that person is selfish because you just sacrifice yourself yeah and i think that plays to that idea of spirals as you said john you can either find yourself in a downward spiral but equally the way to try and elevate yourself from the depths is to try and imagine the small acts of self-care and tasks and unselfish acts of love, which then bring you back up the spiral. And it's incremental. I don't, you don't think you necessarily plunge straight down into a deep depression or rock it uh, back up into a moment of elation. Sometimes it's work. Mm. Are we still answering Gary's question? <laughs> oh, well, Gary's question was a big old question, wasn't it? Meaty old question. I mean, Gary's question was, you know all the podcasts you've ever done? What's that about? <laughs> do you know the world how do we sort that out then let's move on because time is running short for our hour this week is there anything anyone wants to add on on equality before i move on to lighter work no apart from the thank you to james plunkett for well it was an amazing provocative essay yeah we love james i bet he feels insecure he's probably thinking why am i writing this <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've done this amazing piece of work and there's just a few lads prattling on, on a podcast <laughs> about it why are the government not talking about it <laughs> Hello, John, Mark, and Ed. I am not going to pitch for best listener. That sounds like too much hard work. There you go. There's a well-being element to that, isn't it? Sod all that. I'm all right. Not a bad listener. I'd like to pose a theoretical question, a pretty standard pub question along the what would you do if you won the lottery theme. My question is this. What would you do if you were one of the last people on Earth following an apocalyptic event? (laughs) (laughs) Just to raise the tone of the show, yeah, we're going to go from inequality to full-on apocalypse. Yeah, I really like it because this podcast is all about trying to avoid that scenario. And Joe from Milton Keynes says, no, let's get in it. 
there's, there's been a meteor strike or a zombie apocalypse or something. Would you sit on the sofa and hope it blows over, find a doomsday prepper and make friends, forage for food and materials before the other survivors go feral and start eating each other, try and clear the sluice log? It's something I think about a lot. I love zombie apocalypse stuff, and I love wondering which one I'd be. There's always that bit where they find the person who can drive the tank or fly the plane or build the houses or clean the water that has an applicable skill they need, and I think, oh, shit, I'm none of those. I'm your classic episode one. I'm the guy you follow at the beginning <laughs> who sees it happen, <laughs> runs outside and gets eaten within about 10 minutes. Whereas Mark and I are Simon Pegg and Nick Frost throwing Mark's prog record collection uh, approaching <laughs> zombies. It's an interesting question that I think I know what I'd do. Go on. So it's just interesting thinking about the mental health thing because what I'm really good at, it seems, is giving people a vision when things seem difficult and going, look, here is an amazing opportunity to go and create something and do something. So I think my immediate thing was like, I'm going to find everybody else. I'm going to get them in a room and I'm going to tell them that this is our moment to shine somehow and we're going to do it. That would be the thing I would think would be my biggest contribution. And then in that group, I'd encourage the people who are the best at the various things to find their strengths and do the thing we all need. And if that doesn't work, you can always eat them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe maybe that maybe that it was. Well, you you clearly are good with the building. You get on with that. You're very good at cooking, and you do that. You you just look fat. Let's eat you. <laughs> See, I, I don't think that. No. So I think everyone always imagines the apocalypse would be awful. <laughs> However. However, no. You can tell you I used to work in a marketing agency. So lots of people think the apocalypse is awful, but I'm here to tell you it's a wonderful business opportunity. And, uh, <laughs> well, no, I mean it like that. What the way I mean is like everyone imagines that it always brings out the worst in people. Whereas I think actually the evidence suggests that it generally goes in the opposite direction. Rebecca Solnit's written extensively about this, about paradise made in hell. When she visited the sites of big disasters like tidal waves, earthquakes, what you find is there is always a kind of a renegade fringe of people who will exploit that type of stuff. And you can see some of that happening in places like Haiti. But generally, people tend to try and pull together. And it hopefully it brings out the best in folk. So you'd like to think that that sort of civil contingency would be everyone trying to do the best together. Now, there may well be some limits to that, but I think our assumption that it always takes us down to the lowest common denominator and that everyone will go feral and be stealing everything off each other, I think might not be manifested in practice. <laughs> I just assumed you'd write a poem. I thought this would be a sort of light-hearted end question. And do you know what? Actually, in the last five minutes, we've caused an existential crisis in this podcast, which exists to ask questions about how we build a better society and how we might fix some of the problems. And actually, both of your answers have summed up as saying, I actually think the apocalypse will be all right and I'll thrive in it. <laughs> I actually think I'm the kind of person who's best in apocalypse, you said, Mark. And Ed, you said, well, I think all of us actually will find the apocalypse makes us behave like better people. So is this the last in the series? Well, <laughs> is that what you started off saying? Go out on. Is it 50 yeah. and done? <laughs> Episode 50, they decided that actually... We've talked about this at the very beginning of the show, which was the very definition of apocalypse, means a revealing of the truth. And going back to what Mr. Waldinger was saying in his book, every generation feels like the world is going to hell. And he said there are some unique things that are happening to us, and perhaps, you know, 
the poly crises and omni shambles that we always talk about is actually often the things that draw people together. And during that big Harvard study, some of the first participants, you know, who'd grown up in the Great Depression in the US and then were basically flung from that into the Second World War. And they asked them what got them through it. And everyone said something about people. The soldiers who got sent to the front, so it was the people writing to me from home and my fellow soldiers. And when people were asked about the Great Depression, it was their neighbours pulling together and sharing what limited resources they had. So again, it comes back to these strong social networks, which is why our situation is so challenging, because that's where we need to rebuild that trust and faith and hope across society, not just within it, but to come back to our, our hoary old citizens point is like, do things you love that make a difference about things you care about. And we've got to do that together. So is this the time then to say that we will be bringing some people together for a special episode of the show, which is going to be a live one in the back room of a pub somewhere? Yes, we must do the live show and set up the League of Pragmatic Optimists. And as the article says, it comes down to connection and belonging. Join that club. Don't use the self-service checkout. Text a friend and meet them. Read that story to your child. Your health and happiness depend on it. Come to the live show on that topic. We've run out of time. I'm going to go for a run on my own, alone, on a treadmill in my garage. (laughs) So I've learned nothing. (laughs) It's a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for your candor and your expertise and your energy. I appreciate it greatly. And I know the listeners do too. If you would like to drive an episode with a question, it can be a small and flippant one that leads to the collapse of the very ethos of this podcast, like Joe's question there, or it can be one like Gary's that leads to a 50-minute conversation about what we all mean. Uh, But all your questions are welcome. Send them in here. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the futurenauts, all one word, Com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Well, there we go. That's it for this week. Are you looking forward to the week to come? Yeah, we're going on holiday. Oh, the family omni-shambles. Well, it is an omni-shambles <laughs> because the passport office are fucked up and our youngest son doesn't get his passport, so it's just me and the eldest going with Ed and his family. And my poor wife and the youngest are staying here in Blighty. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed, yeah. Is there any hope that that might change? Yeah, it's looking very, very, very unlikely. I think probably my beloved is probably thinking, oh, Got away with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bloody good test, isn't it, of who has the best holiday? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. She'll be at home with Harris having a whale of a time while we trek across Europe on multiple trains. So perhaps an update the next time we speak on the joys of railing around Europe. Yes, indeed. And I'll be able to tell you all about my latest prog outing. I'm going to invite Polly Sampson to write a tweet about you. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots to look forward to. Have a wonderful break. You both deserve it. And we'll see you on the other side. Cheerio. Bye. Lots of love. (laughs) 